Good morning, everybody. You guys know it was 24 degrees when I woke up this morning, and later today it's going to be 50. That is some kind of temperature swing. Yeah, some of those people are thumbs up. Yeah, let's get some of this warm weather. Of course, it is February. And I remember February being uh, a little colder, usually. Um, I actually remember uh, when I was in elementary school, they did this thing, this was back in the 70s, and they did this thing called Energy Conservation Week. Anybody remember? Did they have that up here in Pennsylvania? Because in Maryland, they did this Energy Con Conservation Week, and they would shut down school in, in the middle of February because of, you know, they wanted to save on heat, and they wanted to save, it was the warmest week of the year, every single year. <laughs> Like the week before it was like 15 degrees and the week after it was like 20 degrees and the week during it was like 55. It was just, it was crazy. But um, the decisions that our uh, leaders sometimes have to make, I know some people get frustrated with uh, school closings announcements, right? If they make the announcement ahead of time and then all of a sudden the storm passes us by and we, uh, we, we, we have no snow and we have children at home. And we just have to figure those things out. And, and sometimes it can get a little frustrating. A little, uh, some people get very angry and, and talk about these things on social media. What are they doing? Um, and they kind of grumble a little bit. And this morning, we're going to actually talk about a little bit of grumbling uh, this morning. But we're continuing our sermon series on the winter of our contentment. Uh, we're taking a walk through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippian church, uh, which the Philippian church he had established with this woman named Lydia um, about 10 years prior to the letter. And last week we looked uh, at Paul's instruction to the church about being of one spirit and of one mind so that they might strive side by side against the, e the evil that is the enemy. And we saw that being of one spirit and of one mind provides a lot of things. It provides encouragement in Christ. Comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy. It, it, it draws all of these things out and helps us to feel more content. It helps us to feel like even in situations where things might not be going so well, we can be content because we have encouragement in Christ. We have comfort from love. Uh, the Holy Spirit is working within us. And Paul exhorts the church uh, then a little bit later in the letter to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves and this kind of ties right back to this encouragement in Christ this comfort from love if we experience those things then we likely will not do things out of selfish ambition we will likely say I am content in Christ let me help others find that contentment and we find that humility in Jesus Christ and Paul describes what this humility looks like by the example of Jesus he says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Jesus Christ who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped Jesus emptied himself taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And when we find that contentment, that spiritual contentment in Jesus Christ, that uh, 
that encouragement in Christ, that participation in the Spirit, we are much better able to handle things like this because Jesus also calls us to be humble unto death. He calls us to leave everything, take up our cross, and follow him. And when he says follow him, he means carrying your cross to your death, if that is what is called of us. So we look at this, uh, this entire uh, letter so far, and Paul is trying to encourage the Philippian church, even though they are having some really difficult times. And this week we're going to continue in Philippians chapter 2. We're starting in verse 12. Uh, if you have your Bible or your Bible app or you want to use a few Bible, you can follow along. Uh, the verses also will be up on the screen. But starting in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And we got to stop here for a couple of minutes because Philippians 2.12 is one of the most misunderstood and misused verses in the Bible. Now, there are a lot, but this one really, it's, it's very confusing and the wording is confusing. And, and some people, they'll look at this verse and they, they'll decide basically, oh, well, salvation is whatever I think it is. I have to work out my own salvation. It's kind of like these people say, okay, well then now I get to sit down and negotiate with God and say, hey God, um, I, I want to be saved, but I want my salvation to look like this. And other people use this passage as, as an excuse. They, they find salvation, they find Jesus Christ, and they uh, confess their sins. But then they use this as an excuse not to gather with other believers. They say, well, if I'm supposed to work out my own salvation, what do I need other people for? What do I need other Christians for? I'll work it out on my own. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to gather with other people in small groups. I can do it by myself. And this is what sometimes happens when we take a Bible verse out of context. We really need to read what is going on around it in order to understand it. So what does this mean exactly? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So first we need to look at the context. We need to see the, the context within the entire passage or within even the entire letter. And we've noticed that Paul is not writing a letter to one person. Paul is writing a letter to the entire church at Philippi. And as Christians, we believe that Paul also was writing the letter to us 2,000 years later. He's giving instruction to the church and up to this point, aside from talking about Timothy, who is with him, Paul has not mentioned any single individual. Everything we've read all the way up to chapter 2, verse 12, has been to the church as a whole. And basically what he's been doing is he's been instructing the church as a whole about the things that they ought to be doing the ways that they ought to be acting. 
And if anything, this, this, this context that Paul is writing in for this verse is in the context of the church where he's already told them, you need to act together. You need to be of one accord. You need to be of one spirit, of one mind. You need to strive together. You need to work together. And this is where we get to this passage. Paul is talking about working together with other Christians. He isn't telling us that God saves each one of us differently because he doesn't. Salvation from God is when we repent of our sins and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he died for us. And this action, this, this thing that we do when we repent, it has this big uh, churchy sounding word and it's called justification. And it's justification is kind of a legal term if you've ever studied the law. Justification is something that uh, comes up in, in legal discussions. When we repent and we ask God to forgive our sins, all at once he justifies us. All at once he bangs his gavel and he proclaims us not guilty of our sin. And he does that because Jesus Christ has already paid the price for our sin. And when we come to repentance, God says, you're not guilty. And this is a, a kind of a one-time thing. But as we see in Scripture, as we see throughout the Gospels, as we see throughout the New Testament, it doesn't stop there. You don't just get to say, Lord, forgive me of my sins, and you're done. Because Jesus calls us to follow him. Jesus calls us to follow his instruction. He calls us to follow his example. He calls us to be disciples. And a disciple is literally somebody who acts exactly the same way as the teacher, as the person who has discipled us. In this case, it's Jesus Christ. So not only are we justified, but after our justification, we go into this entire lifelong pursuit of something, another big churchy sounding word called sanctification. So justification, uh, if you, if you want to try to uh, do kind of a mnemonic or, or, or a memory kind of thing, uh, I, always use, I always kind of look at it as justification is a one-time event that makes it as if I've never sinned, just as if I've never sinned. God has wiped my slate clean. It's just as if I had never been a sinner. Sanctification is this long process, and it's a lifelong pursuit. And this is what Paul is talking about here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He is talking about the lifelong sanctification of the saints, of those people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. So this is not about being an individual. And Paul also tells us why we should work out our own salvation together with fear and trembling. He says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul is saying church work together Work in unity, work with each other, and with God to do God's will. 
That is sanctification. Sanctification is doing the will of God in all things for the rest of our human lives. And the other part of this that, that Paul says is that we're supposed to do this with fear and trembling. Now the words here for fear and trembling are Greek words phobos and tromos. Phobos is where we get the word phobia. So if you have ever heard, had a phobia, anybody claustrophobic? Anybody uh, afraid of spiders? You're arachnophobic, right? If you're afraid of the number 13, you're triskaidekaphobic, right? There's all kinds of phobias. And this is where that word comes from, this word phobia. It really means terror. It means alarm. It means, um, in, if it's a verb, it's kind of like panicked flight, right? I'm, I'm, I'm running away from danger. And tromos, of course, literally means trembling. It means quivering. It means quaking. But phobos has a different meaning here. If we, again, we have to look at the context. Phobos means something that is awe-inspiring. Something that stops us dead in our tracks. Now, many of you have heard me talk about the word awesome. Some of you haven't, uh, but for those of you who have not, I do not like the word awesome. Because I think it is overused. Because I do not think that pizza is awesome. I think it is good, I think it is tasty, I think I could eat it every single day and not have a problem with it, but it's not, it doesn't inspire awe in me. And that's what the word awesome means, it means inspiring awe. It means more something like this, look at these faces. Paul is applying this word that basically means Look to God in awe. Work out your own salvation in awestruck wonder. The kind of awestruck wonder where you can't help but tremble. Have you ever trembled? Seriously, think about seeing something or experiencing something so awe-inspiring that it makes you physically tremble. It makes you quake. And Paul says that's how we should treat our salvation. And he tells us because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Paul, again, he's talking to the church. He is talking to all of us as we strive for the sake of the gospel. And a question that I don't think gets asked very often is how awesome do we think God truly is? How awesome do we think God truly is? How often do we tremble in his presence? How often are we so awestruck that it's nothing that we could do but just stop, sometimes drop to our knees and just tremble? in the presence of God. If we consider who God is and what God has done, does it make us quiver? Does it make us tremble? Consider this just for a couple of moments. God, 
who has existed, does exist, and will exist always, spoke the entire universe into being. God who has existed, does exist, and will exist always, created time. He said, let there be light, and he separated the light from the darkness, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God created time, and this God who has existed, does exist, and will always exist, created the stars, and the sun, and the moon, and the planets, and he focused all or almost all of his creativity on one particular rock that we call earth after he created all of these things he did it was like four days to create the entire universe then he spends the next days on earth and this God who has existed, does exist, and will exist always, created everything necessary to sustain the life of everything on earth. Countless plants, countless animals, from single-celled amoebas to 219-ton blue whales. God created all of these things. And then, on day six, God who has existed, does exist, and will exist always, created us. What he has told us is his greatest creation, human beings. And if that isn't awe-inspiring enough, Try to wrap your head around the idea that everything else that God created was for us. The sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the plants, the amoeba, all for us. Everything. And then God had to watch as his greatest creation turned their backs on him. And when that happened, this awesome God who did all of these, if, if creation was all that there was, that would be awesome enough, I think. But when we turned our backs on God, he didn't throw up his hands in, in frustration or defeat. He didn't pack his bags and go and create something else. He didn't suck the entire universe back in on itself and say, oh, let's try again. God had a plan. God's plan was to see us come back to him. He wanted us back the awesome God who created everything and the only thing he wanted was to love us for us to come back to him 
for us to repent. Repent simply is a word that means to change your mind. We left God. We turned our backs on him and all God wants us to do is change our minds. We turned our backs on him. We faced the world. We faced evil. We faced Satan. All he's asking us to do is turn back around. To gaze into his face. To experience his love. He wanted that so, so badly that he was willing to send his only son to live amongst his creation as one of his creation and to die as the only way to get back to the Father. Jesus showed us who the Father was. He told his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. God sent us himself. He sent us Jesus Christ so that we could look on him, on the Father. And then Jesus died so that our sins could be forgiven by the Father through him so that we could repent, so that we could come back. So that we could change our minds. And Jesus rose from the dead so that we might know eternal life with the Father. When we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, reflect on those things. How can we help but tremble? How can we help but be in awe? When we see God for who He is and we consider the tremendous lengths that He went to get us back, does it make us tremble? Paul goes on in Philippians 2.14 and he gives further instruction to the church because he wants the church to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. They want, Paul wants them to fear God. Paul wants them to look on God with awe. And he goes on and he gives instruction. And the very next thing he says after work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to do his will he says, do, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now that's a transition. And, and I read through this and I'm like, fear and trembling. And I'm and, and studying and reading about fear and, and, and actually trembling when I'm kind of really considering all of these things. And then all of a sudden, do all things without fear or do all things without grumbling or disputing. Anybody like to grumble? 
No, we don't like to grumble, do we? Of course, we don't call it grumbling anymore. Now we call it venting. Can I vent for a little while? Can I get something off my chest? Something's bothering me and I want to tell all you people about it. But if we're honest with ourselves, don't we grumble every day? Some of us grumble the minute we wake up. Oh, why is that? Go to work again. I, I, I got to see that person that always takes my coffee cup and eats my lunch. We grumble when we're sick. Right? Guys, especially, right? It has been said that only a woman who has experienced uh, bringing a child into the world can, can experience the pain that a man has when he has a cold. <laughs> we grumble when we have to dig out our cars after the plow comes by after we've already dug out our cars and no, now the plow comes by <laughs> pushes us back in again. Stupid plow. We grumble when the server at our restaurant gets our order wrong. We grumble about all of these things. And those things are really silly things to grumble about. And if that's all that Paul meant about grumbling, that would probably be enough. Because guess what? When we grumble, especially when we're out in public and we grumble, we don't look different than anybody else. We're just a bunch of mumbling grumblers. But Paul uses a, a word here for grumbling that's, that means something much more perilous to the church. And the word here means behind-the-scenes talk. Secret talk. Whisperings. We might know it as gossip. And oh, how we love to gossip. Did you hear about so-and-so? They did such and such. No, really? Yes, but don't tell anybody. Oh, of course, no, I will not tell anybody. Did you hear about so-and-so? <laughs> they did such and such. And not only that, guess what? They did this and that. But don't tell anybody. Oh, of course, I won't tell anybody. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? He did such and such with who and who and there and there and where and where. And pretty soon, the gossip mill has such and such doing so-and-so and this and that and there and gone and hither and yon and all of these things. And nobody knows what the truth is anymore. But I'll tell you what it does help to do. It does help to destroy relationships. It does help to even destroy churches. Paul tells us to do all things without grumbling, right? He says, just like my mom used to say, would you stop your complaining? Eat your dinner. I don't like liver. I don't care. Eat your dinner. And he tells us to do things without disputing, right? So grumbling, we talk about in, in, as individuals, but we also talk about as, as gossip, as things that might split... Uh, people up that, that might upset one group of people over another group of people, all of these things. And he tells us to do things without disputing. Now, some of you have some knowledge of like churches that have had disputes. 
Some of us even have knowledge of churches that have split. Some people went one way, some people went the other way. I've heard of churches being deeply divided over the kind of music that's played during a worship service. People get very upset about that. Did you know the Brethren in Christ did not allow musical instruments until the mid-1950s? They were around since the 1700s. And the only musical instruments at the time that they would allow were organs, maybe a piano. But that split a lot of Brethren in Christ churches when, when the organ was introduced. Well, we're not, we're going to be traditional Brethren in Christ. We're going to go over here and, and you guys go over there and, and play with your Satan music. The organ. But churches split over those things. Some churches, I heard of a church that split because uh, there was a discussion about whether or not to remove the pews and put in chairs. That was a split decision from these churches. I heard of one church when I was living down in Maryland, I was a kid, and I heard about a church that closed because people refused to go because they decided to hire a lawn service to take care of their lawn instead of people volunteering to do it. These are some stupid things to split over. You think? And even as I mentioned some of these things, I could see your minds going, well, yeah, of course we're not going to take the pews out of the church. Why would we put chairs in here? Yeah, I really don't. I, I really don't like the drums and the guitar. I really only want the organ in the church. And it gets our minds going into this place where we, where the, and I'm telling you, this is the enemy sowing division over the littlest things. Because he knows most of the time he can't get us with the big things. He's going to sow division in the tiny stuff. And that's going to be enough. And that's why Paul says, do all things without grumbling and without disputing. And he's not saying don't have a conversation. He's not saying, you know, church board, don't uh, talk about whether or not we're going to paint the walls green or, you know, something like that. What he's talking about is these disputes, these grumblings that cause division, that cause split. Now imagine that you live in a town where a church split, where a church closed down because they couldn't decide on a lawn service. How do you think non-believers in that town are going to look at church? Not just that church, but church in general. They're going to think we're crazy. And grumbling and disputing, they go hand in hand in a church. They completely mute the gospel message. When you're sitting here on Sunday morning and you've got some sort of idea of a division in your mind, You've had a conversation with somebody that you didn't like and they're thinking about doing this in the church and you don't like it. How easy is it to focus on worship when you're focusing on, well, what if they put acoustical panels in the church? That'll make it look ugly. And I'm telling you, these are real things that I have heard from other pastors. 
and it mutes the gospel message. People just don't hear, they don't hear the, the, the music, they don't hear the, the sermon, they don't, they don't want to give, they don't want to pray, they don't want to do anything. And when that happens in a community of believers, the church starts to get destroyed from within. And Paul tells us why. Paul tells us why we need to act in unity, why we need to, to avoid grumbling and disputing. In uh, verse 15, he says, avoid all these things that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Whether you believe it or not, the world is looking at us. They just are. And they are looking for any reason to not repent, to not turn to God. And church people give them a lot of good reasons. We are lights of the world. They are looking at us. And one of the most popular arguments I've ever heard from a non-believer, and I actually had a face-to-face -face conversation, and I was talking about Christianity, I was talking about faith and everything, and he looked at me dead in the face and he said, why should I become a Christian? Y'all are just like me. There's nothing different. Why do I need, why do I need Jesus if I'm going to do the same things that you're doing? I'm going to live the same way that you're living. And he wasn't talking about me as an individual. He was talking about me as the church as a Christian. The world sees us and they see us when we do good works in our community and they see us when we, when we take food to the poor and they see us when we take clothing to the naked and guess what? They also see us when we grumble and dispute and guess which one they'll pay more attention to. They don't care if we feed people or clothe people if we're fighting amongst ourselves, if we are tearing each other apart, they're there for the show, man. Have you ever seen that Michael Jackson thing when he's there with the popcorn? He's just, I'm here for the comments. On Facebook, you see that thing, and it's when people start arguing and fighting about things. And that's what the world does. They want to watch the popcorn. They want to watch the church burn. Let's see what they do next. They don't care that we've done good things. It's almost entertainment for them, for a church to fail. And Paul says it shouldn't be that way. We should present ourselves as blameless and innocent. There should be nothing that we present to the world that would even make them think anything but, hey, they're spreading the gospel. They're reflecting Jesus Christ. They are worshiping God. And they care about my spiritual life. That's what we should be. Paul is saying, shine Christ into the world. And we cannot shine Christ into the world when we are divided. When we are grumbling, when we are disputing. It can't happen as a church. Paul ends this section of the letter. And the first thing he tells the Philippians to do is hold fast to the word of life. 
The word of life is the Bible. The word of life is what we are supposed to use as our authority on all things. And Paul says, hold fast to it. It's the only thing that's going to keep you blameless and innocent in this twisted generation. He goes on, he says, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And Paul gets to this point. He is given the instructions. He is telling us, be unified, strive together, hold fast to the word, be innocent and blameless. And this is the result. Paul wants to be able to point to the church at Philippi and probably all of the churches through history that have read his letter and to look Jesus Christ in the face and say, I did what you asked me to do. See, they are all blameless and innocent. They strove together for your gospel, Jesus. That is Paul's desire. And that's his desire whether he's with them or whether he's not with them. He wants to end the race. He wants to end his labor. And even if it means being killed, he says, that's okay. I'm going to rejoice because I know that you are living the life that God wants you to live. Not only that, but if I die, you should rejoice with me. Because I ran the race with you and my race is done. And you know what happens to me next. Make sure it happens for you too. Stay blameless, stay together, stay unified, strive together. Be the church. We've looked through Philippians 1 and most of chapter 2. and I'm, I was just thinking this week that I want Paul's words to be my prayer for morning hour chapel. And I want it to be my prayer for all of the churches in the community that come together that seek to do God's will. I want us through the love of God and the sacrifice of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to advance the gospel. I want us to strive together, to fight together, to battle together against the enemy, against evil. And I want us to live in unity, and not grumble and not dispute. And all of those things take work. That's why Paul said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's not easy. But as we strive together, as we unify, as we study scripture, as we minister to those in the community, 
let us remember to be blameless and innocent, to shine the light of Jesus Christ so that those of this twisted generation might untwist, might turn around, might repent and see the face of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning Father, I tremble. I tremble at your awesomeness. And Father, forgive me for this is the first time I've trembled in a long time before. God, I want you right now to pour out your Holy Spirit upon all of the flesh here in Morning Hour Chapel. Let us experience like it's the first time your awesomeness. Let us see who you are. Let us remember what you have done the lengths to which you've gone to win us back. Fathers, we celebrate and commemorate communion. We remember what you have done. We remember the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, as we break bread and as we drink the cup. Let us tremble in awe. And Father, let us be lights that shine everywhere. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. morning uh, and on the first Sunday of every month uh, we commemorate the Last Supper we commemorate communion this is the time when Jesus asked his disciples to remember him to remember who he is to remember what he did for the salvation of the world and Jesus gave the bread as a symbol of his body. He gave the cup as a symbol of his blood. And he asked us every time that we gather together to commemorate this Last Supper, that we do it to remember him. Let's take a moment to prepare ourselves. Jesus Christ on the night that he was betrayed at a last supper with his disciples. They prayed together, they ate together. 
Jesus gave them final instructions. And he also gave them a final demonstration. He washed their feet. And he told us that we should serve one another likewise. And that we should serve the world by doing whatever task is necessary. And then after dinner, he took a loaf of bread and he blessed it and he broke it. He passed it out amongst his disciples. He said, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you eat it, do it in remembrance of me, the body of Jesus Christ. He also took a cup of wine. He blessed it. He passed it out to his disciples. He said, drink this, all of it. This represents the new covenant of my blood. It is spilled for the salvation of many. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And as we remember Jesus Christ's sacrifice this morning, let us remember, let us be awestruck with wonder and tremble in the presence of God, the blood of Christ. I'd like to challenge you this week. When you wake up in the morning and you notice the first breath that you take, I want you to consider that the entire universe was created by God so that you could take that breath. And then consider how awesome that is. God bless you this week.